Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Christ Church, a church about lifting lives, elevating Christ, a church for those who aren't here yet. I'm Pastor Andrew. I am glad that you are here now. Whether you are joining us on site and in the room, whether you are in the West Auditorium or you're joining us online as well, it's good to be church this morning. Thanks for coming to worship, everybody. It's good to be with you. This morning, we are kicking off a new sermon series. We are getting excited and getting ready for these next couple of weeks, what we feel like God's going to work and do in us, what he's going to teach us and lead us into. And specifically, it's going to be around this theme, this idea of salt and light, salt and light. There are some phrases in the Bible that sometimes rise in popularity that sometimes people begin to hear or know just in vernacular in other areas and other places. And one of the phrases or two of the phrases that you might have heard before somewhere along in your life, whether you're a Christian or even not a Christian, you might have heard the phrases salt of the earth or light of the world. And so we're going to be spending some time looking at over the next couple of weeks, what does that mean and where does that come from? And i got to tell you where it comes from this morning. It comes from Jesus Christ. It comes from a famous sermon that he gave. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. You ever heard of the Sermon on the Mount before? Raise your hands if you ever heard that before. Sermon on the Mount, great. So the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most famous selections of the biblical text. In the biblical narrative, this is a point in time where Jesus gives a really, really, really big sermon. I mean, he covers a couple chapters in the Bible on this sermon. Don't want to raise your heart pressure, it's okay, I won't go as long as Jesus does. But even so, he gives a really long sermon, and it's a sermon that gets into the details of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount has to do with what does it mean to to live and follow and embrace the teachings of Jesus Christ. And this sermon comes from Jesus really kind of almost early on, if you think about the spectrum of his ministry. A couple things have happened in Jesus' life so far. We get from the Gospel of Matthew. A Gospel is a firsthand eyewitness account of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. And in one of those accounts, the one we refer to as Matthew, this is where Jesus preaches this sermon. Jesus, at this point in time, has started to garner a little bit of popularity. People have like, heard his name by now. He's been traveling around, he's this young rabbi, and he's been doing some really cool stuff that people are taking notice of. Not only is he teaching and preaching some really interesting stuff, but he's been doing some healings, and he's been engaging with people in ways that, well, are just kind of new, different, noteworthy. So much so has Jesus begun rising in popularity that there are, in fact, crowds of people that are starting to seek him out, follow after him, listen to what he's got to say. You have both crowds of people coming from the surrounding towns and areas, as well as some more intimate disciples who have attached themselves to Jesus. And whether you're part of the crowds or whether you're one of those more intimate disciples, 12 guys who live and breathe and spend 24-7 by Jesus' side, Regardless, a follower of Jesus at that time, really it's kind of a hodgepodge in terms of the backdrops, the values, and perspectives that those followers are bringing to Jesus. Jesus is attracting followers from Roman towns, towns filled with non-Jews, people who didn't know the Jewish faith, the Jewish God. He's attracting people who have Greek backgrounds, who are big in a philosophy and can, can speak eloquently about the big, great, wondrous things of the world, and yet 
here's this Jesus guy perking their interest. Of course, you have Jewish brothers and sisters, Jewish people coming from Jewish towns, sitting and following Jesus and asking questions around, is this guy, this young rabbi, the Jewish Messiah? Kind of a hodgepodge of people with different backgrounds, different problems, challenges, life stories. Those 12 disciples themselves were a microcosm of that diversity. They were all over the map in the spectrum as well. They came from different economic backgrounds, education backgrounds, political backgrounds. My goodness, you had a tax collector who was on the payroll of Rome. He was pro-government, pro-structure. He was pro-Rome. And then you have a zealot also sitting as one of those 12 disciples. Anti-government, pro-riot, pro-violence. And yet Jesus seems to bring them together. And with this group of disciples and with these crowds of people, Jesus decides it's finally time to sit down with everybody there and get it what it really means to follow Jesus. The Bible says it like this. One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around them, and he began to teach them. Now, Jesus is a really good preacher. He's far better than me, far better than any other preacher I've ever heard, to be frank. He knows what's up. He knows how to grab people's attention and keep it. And he begins his long sermon with one of the most famous texts, again, in the Bible. Have you ever heard of the Beatitudes before? Yeah? Okay. The Beatitudes, I'm going to read them to you right now. You might have heard of these, again, whether you're Christian or not. These you might have bumped into in your life. You might have heard it in a different translation. The translation that I'm going to be using this morning and reading to you is the NLT, New Living Translation. But you might have heard this in the King James or something like that. It's very eloquent and it's beautiful. Here's what Jesus says to begin the Sermon on the Mount and what it means to be a follower. He says this, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, when you hear that, I don't know about you, but for me, it's really good. It has a positive sense to it. I mean, what's the word that comes to mind when you think Beatitudes? What's the word that gets repeated over and over again? The word is quite simple. It is, well, blessed, right? 
We're blessed. And it has this positive imagery that connects to the Beatitudes. But if we're not careful, if not careful, we can read these Beatitudes and focus and see them strictly as Jesus telling us how blessed we are. For as many positive and wonderful things that can be drawn from this, don't miss the negatives, the struggles, and the problems that Jesus is naming. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, if you're mourning, that means you're dealing with loss, grief. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. What does that imply? A need for justice. Rampant injustice. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who make and initiate peace. What does that entail? What does that mean? What does that imply for our world and for our lives and for the world that we have to navigate every day? It means that there's conflict. If peacemakers are to be appreciated and valued, that means that there's a lot of violence and conflict and difficulty in our world. And so for as positive, as wonderful as Jesus starts off this whole idea of what it means to be his follower, he's being realistic. He's saying the world that you live in, the world that we live in, the world that we navigate and have to deal with has problems, has issues, has challenges. And you as a follower have to figure out how to navigate that. An imperfect, broken world filled with injustice and filled with loss and grief and filled with with conflict. And you have Jesus. And you're his follower. How do you navigate that world as a follower of Jesus? And in case you might have missed it, to make things abundantly clear, Jesus actually takes a step. He begins with very general statements about the world at large. But to make sure that you understand that this pertains to your life, he finishes the Beatitudes this way. He says, God blesses you. Not just the world, you. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you. When they lie about you. When they say evil things about you because you're my followers. He moves to make sure that you understand that you are in this world and you will face challenges, you will face difficulties. And you've got to figure out a way to navigate it. You do. In a very intimate and personal way. What Jesus is very clever about and what he's doing here is he's getting at questions about our identity. Seeing ourselves not just simply as this blessed person, but as a follower of Jesus. Who are you in a challenging, difficult world? Who are you going to be when life is tough? 
Who are you? But life is not good. When you're faced with mourning, when you feel poor in spirit, when you feel overwhelmed by the problems and the situations of the world at hand. Who are you when life is not good? Uh, I'm a, a father of two beautiful little girls. And if you spend time, you'll also hear stories of me tell I love being a dad. And I love telling stories about my little girls. They're still young enough where I can't, hopefully they don't, they're not embarrassed by it. I'll have to get a whole new sermon content when they become teenagers. But I love telling stories about my girls. And uh, this last week I had, a, I had great experiences. I'm kind of preparing and thinking about salt and light. And I'm thinking about the sermon. And I'm thinking about everything coming up. And as part of my family routine, we have a, a process where we read books before we go to bed. Did you guys ever do that growing up? Did you read books going to bed, right? So it's like calming down, you read the books. So we let the girls select two books, and then they get a Bible story. And we've got our regular books. You know what I'm talking about? Like the regular book, like, the go, like they pick it out, and you're like, oh, no, not again. You don't even need to look at it. You just turn the page, and you stare off into the distance as you read it because you, you, you've memorized it. But if you're not careful... Not only have you as the adult memorized it, the child will memorize the book too. So I was reading one of our family favorites. This is my dog named Hope. And my dog named Hope is a great book that tells an incredible story about a relationship with a, a dog named Hope and uh, his, his master, his caretaker, the little girl. Okay? And it's an incredible book. It has a great story. I encourage you to find out more about it. In fact, uh, this book was something that you, in your own way, actually participated in as Christ Church. It was written by a member of Christ Church, and so this book has been prayed over. This book has been blessed, and we ask God to, to walk with the author as this book actually serves as advocacy for those struggling with pediatric cancer. Because if you read the book, what you find out is that this little girl has some big problems in life. She's facing some big challenges. She has cancer. As I was reading this book to my little girl, my four-year-old, and let me tell you, it's a big book, thank you for that. Look at that. As I was reading this book, I, I had to gauge my daughter's tiredness and I realized she was getting increasingly sleepy. And as a shrewd and wise parent, I started summarizing. You guys ever do that before? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and this is the page where this happens, and this is what this happens. And I started accelerating the rate at which I turned my pages, you know? And in the process of doing this, as I'm talking and telling this story to my little four-year-old, her name is Annalise, and uh, as I'm talking and sharing this with Annalise, as I'm reading this story, I refer to the little girl in the book as a cancer patient. And my little four-year-old stopped me 
she used to put out her hand and, and she grabbed a hold of my leg. She said, Dad, Dad, she's not a cancer patient. She's just a little girl who has cancer. That's my two-year-old, by the way. <laughs> read me the book. I'll read it later, okay? <laughs> my four-year-old, my older child, actually did do that, though. She reached out, and she told me that. Dad, she's a little girl who just has cancer. Too often... If we are not careful, we can allow the significant and overwhelming problems that we face privately and personally, as well as publicly, we can allow the problems that we face, where that we, we, we embrace them and they allow them to become so big in our lives that they stop defining the situation and they start defining the person, where all of a sudden our identity moves and shifts, and we actually adopt the problem as our primary identity. And we go from being a kid who has cancer to a cancer patient, defined by it, ruled And I can't help but think, as Jesus is sitting there, as Jesus is with his, his 12 disciples, as he looks out at the crowds of the, the moms, the dads, the husbands, the wives, the multiple ages, grandmas and grandpas, the kids running around, as he looks out at the people and sees these are people with issues, challenges, difficulties, conflict. These are people facing a difficult and broken world, both personally and publicly. These are people who need to know, who need to understand that it is not the problems and the brokenness of this world that defines them. Followers of Jesus are not defined by their problems. Followers of Him are defined by Him. Followers of Him, Jesus Christ, are defined by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus are defined by the teachings, the words, the proclamations of God-made man, Jesus Christ. You. You are defined by the voice of the living God that came into a person named Jesus in the fullness of a God-man who dwelt among us 
And just as he spoke to, and just as he spoke over the disciples back then, he speaks over you, the disciples, the crowds of today. He defines you. His love. His grace. His compassion. His plans and His purposes define you. And as he launches into this whole sermon, as he launches into the Sermon on the Mount, where he is going to describe to you in great detail all the many facets, all these different situations of how does a, how does a Christian, how does a Jesus follower respond? What does it mean to be defined in him? What does it mean to be defined by what he says you are? What does it mean to be defined by the life and the teachings, the death, the resurrection of Jesus? as he's about to launch into this big, beautiful sermon. He begins his sermon on the definition of a follower of Jesus on you, on your identity, with two simple yet profound claims. He looks at people with problems, And he says, you, my followers, my people, you. You are the salt of the earth. That's who you are. This is who you are. You, you are the light of the world. In a world ravaged with darkness and issues and challenges and problems and brokenness, you, you are the light of the world. in two simple, clean, accessible, in two simple sentences. Jesus lays the foundation for who we are as his followers. And he begins by naming you, his people, as salt, and light. That's who you are. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to explore in more detail what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? What does it mean to be the light of the world? What's the impact? What's the significance? What does it mean as we do continue to live in this broken world to be defined by these words from our Jesus? I hope you'll keep coming back. I hope you'll keep hearing more and tuning in. Because when Jesus begins his entire sermon about what it means to follow him, 
He begins by calling you salt and light. And he wants you to know that's who you are. The salt of the earth and the light of the world. Let me pray that for you and pray that over you now. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, gracious God, we thank you and we praise you this morning. We give you our worship. We, we sing to you with thanksgiving in our hearts. And we do so because we know that we are defined not by the problems of this world, not by the problems that we face in our own lives, not by the problems that we see on TV, but instead we are defined foremost by the words that you speak over us. We are defined by your love and your grace and your compassion, your forgiveness. We are defined by your words that we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. As we navigate this difficult world, as we navigate the challenges that we each face, grant that we would be foremost in our minds, there would be an understanding and there would be a clinging to in our faith, a clinging to these words and to this knowledge, to this understanding, to this confession that you define us as our Lord and as our Savior. In doing so, may we be blessed. I pray this into your people and over your people this morning. And I invite all of us as your people to join with one voice, praying the way Jesus, you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.